it's a little bit like the difference between running in a tunnel and running on a track with open fields either side. If you've decided you have a very concrete goal, like I'm going to be a doctor and you don't get into medical school or you get into medical school and hate it or a whole range of options. If that's been your goal, you're really left with nowhere to go. But if your aim is to heal people, to make a difference in the world of medicine, you make it just a little bit broader, well, then you're not running through a tunnel anymore. In her book, Conversational Intelligence, Judith Glasser wrote, to get to the next level of greatness depends on the quality of our culture, which depends on the quality of our relationships, which depends on the quality of our conversations. Everything happens through conversations. Welcome to Conversations, powered by Quantivos. Welcome to Conversations Powered by Quantivos. I'm Brian Gorman, your host and a coach here at Quantivos. And our guest today is Elizabeth Gould, the author of Feeling Forwards. Thank you, Elizabeth. Oh, thank you, Brian. I'm delighted to be here. Elizabeth, this book comes out of a lot of lessons learned in very difficult situations for you. Mm. And, and I think it's important to begin with, for our listeners to understand a little bit about what led to this book for you. Sure. Well, I think this book really started because I was an absolute failure at recreating um, the life of Agatha Christie, which is what I dearly wanted to do. So I, through corporate careers, legal careers, I wrote away, I think, maybe 10, 15 books that murder mysteries that no publisher wanted to have any interest at all. But I, I kept writing away. And so when when my world collapsed, pretty much I was diagnosed with cancer. But immediately before that, I was involved in a home invasion where a, a, a psychopath randomly decided to break into my house, threatened me, threatened to kill my children who were two and four at the time. And I was badly injured in that in that attack. So I was grappling with the aftermath of that then i got diagnosed with cancer so it was a it was a very dark time but when i came through the cancer and i adopted some very if you like strict personal rules to manage my way mentally through that i was in a bookstore and i, I noticed my business brain said i think there's a gap in the market when it comes to books about cancer because they were all written from a diet perspective or a meditation perspective or a single-person perspective. And I thought, no one's writing about how cancer survivors thinks, or more importantly, how they think to survive. So I had these theories about what the secret was, and I interviewed a number of different cancer survivors and put together the first book, which was published in eight countries and a, and a, a very good success. So, yes, I'm one of those overnight successes with their first published book which was, I think, very much due to the fact I've been writing away with the body and the library and the dagger and the poison for years. So I got really practiced at writing a book. Then I wrote my second book, Happy Children's Secrets of How They Think. And then I took a, took a bit of a pause. I wanted to move away from the overcoming challenge genre in its strictest form. I became quite unwell as a side effect of some cancer um, 
drugs and I helped my husband build his business and went into the entrepreneurial world. And while I was in the entrepreneurial world, I had the privilege of working with Randy Zuckerberg and having my work endorsed by Tony Robbins. I really noticed there was a certain thinking pattern, if you like, of entrepreneurs that contrasted sharply with athletes and high performance. And I've always been interested in athletes and high performance. So I put together Feeling Forwards because I really discovered I wanted to write a book, a personal development book that wasn't about what I call wishing and hoping (laughs) because wishing and hoping doesn't work. I wanted to write very much a science-based book that gave someone the formula to create the life they wanted. And as the book, the, the second title of the book says, How to Become the Person Who Has the Life You Want. I want to go back to something you said for, for just a moment to reinforce its validity um, in my secondhand experience. I trained in conversational intelligence with Judith Glasser. At the time, Judith was living with stage four pancreatic cancer and had been living with stage four pancreatic cancer for several years. When you receive that diagnosis, living for several months is considered a miracle. Uh, yeah. a, a miracle. Mm. And Judith was very open about her diagnosis, but she would also come into class and we were virtual online. I mean, she was teaching thousand plus people in these court classes. Um, she would come online and, and she would put on the screen her cancer marker history. And every time Judith was teaching, which was her passion, her cancer markers would precipitously drop. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. And, and so I bring that into this discussion because where we're going is real. It's, it's not some woo-woo science kind of uh, pretend this will happen and, and it will. There's real science behind what you're talking about, what we're talking about today. I love, I love that story because um, one of my passions, and you mentioned it during a pre-podcast chat, um, one of my beliefs that, that caught your eye when you were reading about me was that I don't believe in positive thinking. And I think that that lovely story you've just told really reflects that because what was happening within Judith's body at that time was firstly, she was, she was emotionally happy. She loved to teach. She was also relaxed because this, this was her space. This was her place. If she had sat there, not she very intelligent woman, she wouldn't have, but if she'd sat there thinking, my life is great, my life is great, chanting, you would, that would not have had the same effect on her cancer markers. In Feeling Forwards, one of the things that really jumped out at me is you don't believe in goals either. No. No, I don't believe in goals. Um, that, that doesn't mean to say I'm like a rudderless ship on a high sea, just aimlessly drifting everywhere. Not, not at all. I do believe in aims. I'll describe the, the beauty of an aim. The beauty of an aim is that it can flex with you as your life changes. And it also gives you the option of changing direction without a sense of failure. I, when I first became um, interested in whether or not you had to pursue a goal versus an aim, I did a lot of research um, in the book about 
athletes that have the goal and then they do all this incredible visualization about standing on the podium and you know how the race is going to go and they they have a very um active imagination but so many swimmers including michael phelps talk about sliding into depression while they're still on the podium getting the gold medal put around their neck and the reason is if you have a very finite goal like one day i'm going to win a gold medal you don't imagine the space after that you don't imagine the life after that and then unless you unless you have an overarching aim for example i'm going to be the best in my sport um as an example to every skinny kid from minnesota that they can be an olympic champion and then i'm going to talk about how i got there and whatever else well getting a gold medal fits within that aim but it's it's not finite i love when you talk about we can change directions inside an aim i work with a lot of my clients by beginning with the end in mind but again the end is not a goal it's a story it's it's and it's not a story about when I, it's a story that I have achieved this. And, and that makes it a head, heart, and gut story. Mm. And, and, and a story that's emotional. You know, I, I feel what it is like to be doing that thing that I'm aiming to do. Yes. Um, and again, very often I'll have somebody say, but I can't predict the future. Um, you know, things happen again. The beauty with an aim is yes, things happen and no, you're not predicting the future. You're creating the future and we'll come back and talk about that. But when things happen that change that path, whether it's, you know, this is my aim by new year's Eve of 2024 or, or whatever it is. Um, it's your story. It's your aim. You have every right to edit it. Absolutely. And I, I think as I, I use an analogy with some of my, my coaching clients, it's a little bit like the difference between running in a tunnel and running on a track with open fields either side. If, you're, if you've decided you have a very, very concrete goal, like I'm going to be a doctor, there's really, and you don't get into medical school or you get into medical school and hate it or a whole range of options. If that's been your goal, you're really left with nowhere to go. But if your aim is to heal people, to make a difference in the world of medicine, you make it just a little bit broader, well, then it, then you're not running through a tunnel anymore. You're running on a track with an open field either side and you can get off that track and you can run across the field and you're still still running, looking forward but it gives you so much more flexibility. And as you say, you associate the emotions come into it. When I talk about, um, there's a success formula I talk about in the book. I don't use it in quite those terms. I've evolved that further since the book came out. But to create the life you want, it's a combination of your aim, your inner justification, and then your behaviours and attitudes. Because I, I... high achievers, you know, the top 1% who will come to me because they're not feeling successful or they're dissatisfied. And they'll say things like being very driven personalities. They'll say things like, look, I really, oh, it's, it's just my behaviors and attitude, the problem. I, I really want to get up at four, four o'clock in the morning and go to the gym. And I, and I, I just can't make myself get up at four o'clock. So, um, can you, 
teach me a, you know, do I need to put my alarm on earlier? Do I need to do this, all this stuff? And I said, say, well, if your inner justification was in alignment, you'd bound out of bed. Think of it like you have to get up at four o'clock to go to the gym or you have to get up at four o'clock to take a plane for an all expenses paid Caribbean trip at a five-star resort for a week. What's the difference? You're still getting up at four o'clock in the morning. It's the inner justification. You bound out of that bed to catch that plane like a, like a squirrel. So it's about getting your emotions in alignment. If that's really what you want to do is to get up at four o'clock in the morning. Not that I necessarily recommend that. <laughs> so again, uh, you're bringing emotion into this, this conversation. Absolutely. Emotion is, uh, emotion is the secret source that, that I think this positive thinking movement has really diluted over the last couple of decades. If the other thing about the, the power of emotion is it can transform you. You can't think hope and confidence. You can't think it. You have to feel it. And the people that are able to achieve their aim, whether or not that's creating an incredible family or changing careers or any of that, it's because they feel the hope and confidence that they can do that. For, I think, all of my lifetime, at least, we have approach change as if it's an intellectual exercise. <laughs> and I really relate to what you're saying about positive thinking. I had never really thought about it in that way before we talked and, and I read the book. Um, positive thinking is an intellectual exercise. Change is emotional. Mm. Even if I am striving to do something that I am so highly passionate about. A, that passion is an emotion, but B, there's another emotion, which means I have to let go of something that I've been attached to Yes. in order to connect to that new thing that I'm reaching for. Yes. So to think whether it's organization or personal change or whatever change it is to think that we're going to think our way through this successfully is is a fallacy mm, that's so insightful brian i mean if you if you geek out or dive into the weeds a little bit for a moment um thoughts are a product of our conscious mind but our emotions generate from our subconscious mind so it depends on how you're feeling as to what you're going to think and you cite in the book some data that I had received from another source, and I thought, this really can't be true until I did some more research. We, through all of our senses and through our intuition, are receiving about 11 million bits of data a second. What reaches our consciousness is, and your number is a little bit different from mine, but the difference really doesn't make a difference. The number I learned was 134. 134 of those 11 million bits of data yeah. reach our consciousness a second. Yes. And it's very carefully filtered by our subconscious mind. So again, the fact that that's where our emotions play, if you will, um, really says how we tune our filters. 
Yes. Really changes the direction of our lives. Oh, absolutely. And what, what you choose to notice, I, I read a very, um, if we want to talk about limiting beliefs, people talk about limiting beliefs, which once again is, is your conscious mind. But really, a limiting belief is something, a way you feel and think about an event that didn't work out for you once. Perhaps it's, you know, you went up to someone at a party and, um, and tried to say something witty or buy them a drink or whatever, and it didn't work. Well, then you can very quickly form a, a limiting belief that you're not great at going up to someone at a party and making a conversation. It's not actually real. It's just the, the brain as a survival, the ultimate prehistoric survival weapon. If anything that you feel bad about happens, I say, oh, won't do that again. So it becomes a limiting belief. Then, as you say, those 134 pieces of information a second are then overlaid. If you're in a party situation, they're all overlaid by that filter. So then it's really easy to think, oh, that person's looking at me a bit weirdly. Oh, okay, perhaps I've worn the wrong thing. Why did I come to this party in the first place? I should have stayed at home and watched Netflix. And then you're right. The direction of your life in a very subtle, um, almost in, insidious way starts to change and not necessarily for the better. I want to dive into another piece of the brain, if you will. Oh, yes, please. Um, which is the, the role the pattern plays. Mm in our brains and, and therefore how we interact with the world around us. In, well, in terms of pattern, I mean, do you mean that from a positive or a negative perspective? Yes. Creating patterns. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. Um, you know, if we think about those numbers, 134 and 11 million, mm. if we were capable of processing, I, I we, we can't process 11 million bits of data a second. It's, it's, you know, our brains may be supercomputers or whatever you want to call them, but they're, they're not that powerful. And so the positive is patterns allow us to do a lot of stuff without using our brain actively. Mm. Well, I think that's a very powerful point because when I'm, when I'm um, coaching someone on how to use feeling forwards, it's a very much projecting your imagination into the future. So I'll give a, a, an example. Someone came to me that was trying to change direction in their career and they, were, um, they weren't as skilled in this area as they would have liked and they were, they were finding a lot of their own limiting beliefs to hold themselves back and they had an interview coming up. I said, okay, what I'd like you to do, I'd like you to prepare for the interview as though you had already been in a job for three months. And if you had been in this particular job for three months, I want you to to practice what your day would be like what kind of books would you be reading what route would you be taking to work how would you be dressing because this was a bit of a promotion as well um how would you be interacting so we built up a whole picture of what debbie's life would be like in three months time when she got the job and i said then i want you to she did as much as um do as much research as you can on LinkedIn, for example. Find out the faces of the people in the company. Because when you go in for the interview, remember, you've already been working with these people for three months. So you're going to be very relaxed because they're colleagues. You're just catching up. So we painted a very detailed picture. So she had, if you like, a, a pattern of what her future was going to feel like in this particular area of her work before she got to the interview. So I was, I was a little bit, uh, I was nervously waiting for her call i was curious to see how it went because she she had to work she wasn't used to using her imagination this way 
she rang me and she said, oh, my goodness. They asked me everything I would never have been able to ask, uh, to answer unless I had done the feeling forwards because I'd already thought about not only who my competitors were in the market, but what, what strategies, what projects would I be running to counteract these competitors? Um, and she got to the next level of the interview process. So I think of patterns in, in that way of creating a pattern that's going to get you where you want to go, even though you're already there, and then have a pattern of what your behaviours and attitudes are going to be to create that future. I, I want to echo that with a story of one of my clients who was a partner in a, a small tech company and his responsibility, his responsibility were, was sales. And he said, when I go on a sales call, I close maybe 20%. I get another 30% that say no, and 50% want to think about it. Okay. And maybe 10% of them will eventually say yes, and the other 40% just end up ghosting me. And very much like you were talking about your uh, client, we talked about what it what it's like for him, what that experience is, walking back to his car with the signed contract. Mm. And he began getting to the appointments early and sitting in the parking lot. And I want to come back to this, not looking at the entrance of the building and seeing himself walking back, but actually experiencing in his mind walking out of the building with contracts. His close rate within a few months jumped up to 65% from 20%. That's awesome. And fewer people were ghosting him, obviously. Mm. But again, the difference, and you talk about this in the book, and, and I, I mentioned it here, again, it's not visualizing yourself as if you're in a movie. Could you give us a little more of, of why that doesn't work? Yes. Yes, no, I love that. you. That's a great story. Um, I, uh, that's a brilliant coaching result. Um, I love that you bring this up because visualization traditionally is, is designed so it will, will never work because you feel detached. So one example I give in the book is once again a, an Olympic example just because the Olympics are so accessible, everyone has seen some part of some Olympics. So the difference between visualization, the traditional visualization is you, you see yourself perhaps standing on stage, you see yourself stepping on the podium, but it's like you're a bit of like a, a movie, you're watching it yourself from a distance. And if you do it yourself, and I take you through an exercise in the book, if you do it yourself, you realize, oh, wow, it's like a fuzzy picture of myself in the distance. The way feeling forwards visualization works is you actually use all of your senses. So you physically feel your foot. You feel, imagine the muscles. You imagine your leg lifting up onto the podium. You look out at the audience through your own eyes. You feel the, when a crowd makes an enormous roar, you know, you feel that in your chest. And that actually, literally, it's it's quite a powerful exercise. Some people find that they, they come close to tears or they feel a little even jittery afterwards because your body actually can't tell the difference. When you imagine it like this, your body can't tell the difference between you being there and not being there. 
Um, they've done all sorts of really great experiments, which I reference in a very accessible format in the book about if you imagine in this way yourself swimming up in a pool at a resort, your body actually doesn't know the difference that you're not actually doing it. All the, the muscles and the firing and the wiring are actually going on just by using your imagination in this way. I often share with my clients, our brains are not data processors. They're story processors. We had story before we had language. We drew it in the dirt and painted it on walls and on hides and stuff. And, and so that's why we're actually building new neural networks, new muscle memory before we've even stepped into the pool, if you will. Yes. And, and everything, the decisions we make really impact on that in terms of the, you talked about a filter or a lens um, and how you choose to look at various experiences. I have so many clients that would will come and, and say, well, I, I couldn't possibly do that when we're talking about making a breakthrough or making a change. And I'll say, well, well, why not? And after you've asked why not about 10 or 12 times and you get to the real reasons, sometimes it's, it's as simple as, you know, Auntie Meg said my legs were too short for running or it comes down to a, a once again a limiting belief based on very little information even fewer facts that somehow has got stuck in our brain and that we then regurgitate and we think it's a reason for not doing something it's not it's an excuse but it's just that loop that's so easy to get stuck in and if you are able to harness your know, feeling forwards in an imaginative way if you can feel yourself, if you if your subconscious mind believes that this is possible, then your thinking changes because your conscious mind gets everything it needs from your subconscious mind. Elizabeth, any last thoughts before we wrap this up? I know we could go on for a long time here. <laughs> uh, well, look, I would love I would love everyone to read the book. Everyone that has a big dream, anyone that's feeling stuck, anyone that's going through a really really challenging time. I know what it was like when I was in the midst of cancer treatment with, with no hair and, you know, one breast and everything else. And someone to say, a healthy person would say to me, think positive. Um, didn't arouse very charitable thoughts at the time. So I, I know what it's like to, to go through enormous challenges. And in this book, you're not going to find any false hope or thinking positive, you're going to actually find a process through you can transform whatever you whatever is happening to you into the direction you want to go. And again, to wrap this up, going back to what I said early on, it's based on real science. Elizabeth Gould, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been a pleasure, Brian. I'm so glad you invited me. 